True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht. And this week, I've got something new and exciting to share with you. A while back, I was doing one of my usual searches for the words serial and killer, as one does. And I came across a research paper from September 2009. It was entitled, A Narrative Exposition of Serial Murder in South Africa. Now, I'm always looking for proper forensic psychology research, which is why I love Mickey Pistorius' book so much. So this research paper got my heart beating a little bit faster. I then noticed that it was also 639 pages long, so it wasn't going to be a light Sunday morning read. I saved it in my Stuff to Read folder, and it sat there for a little while. When I started reading through it, I couldn't believe my eyes. A student from the University of Pretoria, who was completing his PhD, had conducted the study, and he'd actually included transcripts of interviews that he'd done with serial killers. The study itself was, of course, far deeper than that, but those transcripts got my mind racing with possibility. Hearing interviews with serial killers always fascinates me. The way they string their words together, the emotion, or more often lack thereof, and their descriptions of their crimes always seems to provide a deeper insight than just seeing a story written about the killer in a true crime book. So me, being the cheeky little person that I am, decided to contact the author of the research paper and ask him if he'd be okay with me using the information in a podcast. His name is Dr. Bryn Hodgkiss, and I found him, of all places, on Twitter. I followed him, and as I couldn't send him a direct message until he followed me back, I tweeted a public message and tagged him, explaining that I run a true crime podcast, and I'd like to use some of the information from his paper in an episode. Dr. Hodgkiss replied and gave me his email address. We conversed for a little while on email, and then we scheduled a call. That call resulted in today's episode, and the surprise I have for you is that I have Dr. Bryn Hodgkiss on the line, and today we're going to be discussing one of the interviews he conducted with an offender who was classed as a serial killer. Many of you may be familiar with the Netflix series Mindhunter. The series follows members of the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit when they started interviewing serial killers in prisons in the US in the 80s. The information they collected would become the backbone of the work we now know as criminal profiling and would lead to the coining of the term serial killer. As in the Mindhunter series, all of Dr. Hodgkiss's interviews were conducted on the condition of anonymity for the offender. So when we use a name for the offender in the interview, it's not his real name. 
The reason that this is done is to provide a safety net for the offender. They'll be more likely to share information about their pasts and their crimes if they know that it's not going to be splashed all over the news headlines with their names attached to it. Now, this may all seem like researchers are pandering to serial killers and protecting them, but that's not the case at all. These people are already in jail. The information gleaned in these interviews is not used for prosecution. It's used for research so that we can understand these people better and hopefully prevent the same types of situations from occurring in the future. All right, enough from me. I'm pretty sure that you are dying to hear from our guest today. So let's get into the interview with South Africa's Mindhunter, Dr. Bryn Hodgkiss. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Hello, Dr. Hodgkiss. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat to me today. I really do appreciate it. Hello, and it's lovely to be here. Thank you. So I've given our listeners a brief overview of what you were doing in 2009, uh, but maybe you'd like to start off by just explaining what you're doing at the moment. Well, after spending about 15 years in policing, first working with the police in South Africa and then um, working my way through, through the ranks in the police in, here in the UK, at the moment, I started working in change management. So helping people sort of transform organizations and themselves through using stories. And your timing was perfect because I was just looking back at the work I'd done in my PhD and just taken the decision to get the dusty box of old tapes and case files out my garage roof when you gave me a call about the podcast. So excellent timing. Oh, fantastic. Sometimes these things happen for a reason, I do believe. <laughs> Absolutely. If we can just go back to when you were a student at, at the University of Pretoria, you decided to conduct the study that we're going to be discussing one of those cases today on serial killers in South Africa. Can you maybe give us an idea of why you decided to choose that sort of topic or arena in psychology and how you hope that the research might add to what was already there in forensic psychology in, in South Africa? Yeah, sure. So actually, the, the journey started some years before I became a PhD student. And it really started in a, a small brick building right on the dividing line between the sort of student part and the township in Grahamstown, down in the Eastern Cape. And we were supporting the police in some of their investigations. And that low brick building was the local mortuary. And I remember really distinctly standing over the body of a schoolgirl who had, who had been murdered. And we were advising the case. And I remember getting an incredibly strong feeling of, you know what, I need to do something about it. And it became a bit of a mission. So when the opportunity came up to go interview people in prison who had committed these sort of crimes, I leapt at the chance. And what I was hoping to add was by getting a better understanding of why people commit 
their offences and how they come to commit them, we get a better chance of of catching them more quickly. Sure. Well, I think, you know, especially when you see a young person whose life has been taken in an untimely fashion, I, I can imagine that must have had a major impact on you. So what was the, the process you had to follow to be able to conduct these interviews? So I assume there must have been a, a great deal of work involved in applying to be able to interview these types of offenders. I'm sure you don't just walk in and, and visit them. <laughs> no, I find that the prison servicing discourages you just walking off the street and asking to chat to people. <laughs> I, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, the, the first step was really getting support from the investigative psychology unit in the South African Police Service. So first through uh, Mickey Pistorius and then subsequently through Gerald Lubiskaki. They both are really important in uh, opening doors with the correctional services by saying, actually, we would like someone to do these interviews and we're willing to support them to do it. Once I'd got that support, There was then, of course, all the paperwork that one needs to go through Mm. as part of a psychological study. Probably the the biggest part of that is getting your proposal approved by the university and making sure that it's ethical. So any research proposal involving research on humans has to go through ethics committee to make sure that uh, I won't be harmed, but more importantly, that the people I interview will be treated in a professional and respectful manner. And once we had jumped through the ethics committee, then there was simply the, the planning that I wanted to go through before I, I walked through the prison doors and sat opposite someone and spoke to them. So that was finding the case file dockets and finding their investigating officers so I could understand as much as possible about who they were and the offences uh, they had committed before I, I started talking to them. Yeah, I can imagine that would be very important to sort of have a, a background before you walk in there so you're not just hearing their narrative, but you've got the sort of factual narrative behind it as well. Yeah, and, and it was always useful to sort of compare and contrast. Mm. And, and in some cases also, it's a way of demonstrating interest, you know, I think the the thing that one always needs to remember is just because you've committed murder doesn't suddenly make you non-human. And all humans like someone to pay attention to them and someone to show an interest. And I think that was an important part of of building that relationship. Mm. That's a very important point. So your paper covers two interviews, but when we initially chatted, You said to me that you actually interviewed 13 serial murders in total. How did you decide, sort of select which you were going to interview? Did did they have to meet certain criteria for your study or were they just ones, these were just ones that agreed to be interviewed by you? I'd originally interviewed them for my master's study, so some years before. I see. Um, And I'll give you the technical term because it makes me sound really clever. (laughs) It was a a non-random purposive sample. So basically it was on availability. So I looked at who could I find, which prison they were in, how far was it for me to travel, and did I share a first language with them? Mm -hmm. So I conducted the interviews either in English or in Afrikaans Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to work through an interpreter, especially when you're trying to get a narrative 
you want to be able to, to understand directly, really, what the person was saying. So ideally, it was availability. And then, of course, if they didn't want to speak to me, they were excluded from the sample. Yeah. I can imagine that the language barrier could be a problem because there's so many intricacies in language just in affect and certain words that are used, especially in some of the African languages in South Africa, where just a slightly different sounding word could mean a totally different thing. And if a translator gets that wrong, it could totally skew your study to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. Or also sometimes just understanding how the the tone that someone said something in matches the word they use. Mm. And I know we'll, we'll come on to discuss Jacques in a minute. And for him, if I couldn't match the, the tone to the word, I would have really struggled to understand a lot of the deeper meaning. Sure. I mean, but those poor guys had to be inflicted by my rather poor Afrikaans. So um, <laughs> they had my sympathies. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't have been worse than mine. <laughs> <laughs> In your paper, you mentioned that one of your objectives was to explore serial murder from a narrative psychology perspective. Could you, for us lay people, me included, give us a better understanding of exactly what narrative psychology is and what types of information you were hoping to draw from the research? Yeah, of course. I mean, psychology is a broad church. There's so many different types of psychology from you know, people doing experiments on monkey brains, creating complex mathematical models, all the way to really sort of philosophy. And narrative psychology is a little bit more towards the sort of philosophical end. Fundamentally, what it proposes is that we are created by the stories we tell. We tell ourselves and the stories that are told about us. And Really interestingly is, since I did my PhD, there's a lot more studies coming out from neurology and neuroscience that are adding some support to what narrative psychology is saying, that actually stories for humans are a way we understand the world. And more than once we've created a story about an event or about ourselves, that story then becomes something that we filter the whole world through. And so in the context of serial murderers, I was looking to see, can the stories the persons tell about themselves explain how they came to kill? Mm. And could we then look at the characteristics of their crime scenes and identify the characteristics of the person's stories who committed that crime? So really seeing, could, wow. could the story help us profile offenders better? Sure. It's very interesting because, I mean, storytelling is a major part of society from, you know, caveman days, um, from the, the time that we re- could record it in any type of story. And I think it's a very interesting route to be going down in psychology because I think it really, you know, it happens on a daily basis. We do We do tell ourselves stories and I guess you were looking at guys on a totally different level that were being out stories that they told themselves. That's that's very interesting. No, absolutely. And and as I said before, it's as humans we tell ourselves stories mm. and serial murderers are humans and they just happen to be telling themselves 
a particularly extreme and dysfunctional story, sure. but that story still has its own internal logic. Sure. Well, speaking of humans, that brings us into our next question. Yeah. You are a man of science, but you are a human being as well, of course. And I can only imagine that there must have been perhaps a certain amount of anxiety or anticipation in knowing that you were going to be sitting across the table from people who had taken the lives of multiple other people. Can you maybe give us an idea of how you felt when you were about to conduct that first interview? Yeah, so I'd conducted interviews first with sort of rapists and, and serial rapists and then moved on to serial murder. Uh, almost opportunistically, they thought, well, while I'm interviewing a rapist, I know there's a serial murderer who's also committed rape. I wonder if I could get him to interview him. <laughs> so something that, you know, I found I had to do in the interview was you focus very much on trying to build a relationship with that person. So almost my overwhelming thought was just don't mess this up. You know, try to understand the person from their perspective, try to keep the rapport going, make sure that they feel at ease so they'll speak to you. So that was the nerves. And in a way, some of your other sort of deeper emotional responses kind of get put into the background. Perhaps like a surgeon will think when he's performing surgery, he said, I, I'm, I can't think about this as a human right now. Put my emotions in a box right. and come back to them later. Okay. Um, so that was sort of in the interview. But afterwards, you often are, you sort of need to give yourself a bit of decompression time and go, wow, that, that was quite strange. Or the person I was speaking to when he was telling me that story, he wasn't talking about just having a cup of tea. You know, he really did kill people. That was gave some very interesting reflections afterwards. I can imagine. I guess that's also sort of in interrogations, a similar tactic that interrogators will use to try and sort of adopt a relationship with the person they're interrogating so that they can win their trust and get the information that they need. I guess that's sort of a similar dynamic. Yeah, certainly from the, from the investigating officers I spoke to and... Mm. And then subsequently in my career with policing, speaking to people who did do more of the, the interrogation and interviewing work, but it was really important, mm. you know, to, to understand the person sitting opposite you and adapt how you, you present yourself sure. in order to draw them out. The process took quite a long time. I see that the interview we'll discuss today was conducted in the year 2000, and your paper was, of course, published in 2009. How long did the whole study take you? <laughs> so my PhD from start to finish took me five years, 11 months, and 23 days. Um, <laughs> Precisely. But who's counting? <laughs> Precisely. I actually did the interviews while I was still a student and then came to the UK, got a, a job with the police here just randomly because I, I wasn't sure what else to do. And it was a chance conversation with a friend when I said, well, one day I might do a PhD when I'm less busy. And the friend said, well, when's that going to be? I thought, you know what, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. So uh, I got the, the dusty box of tapes out. I, I, I reached out to Jared Lebeskachny, who I'd spoken to before, and got the process of the PhD going, which I, I then did while I, was, while I was working. Okay. I selected one of the offenders that you discussed in your paper, whose pseudonym was Jacques Extien, for us to, to discuss in today's episode. 
According to your paper, Extian was a 33-year-old white Afrikaans-speaking male. He'd been convicted of five murders and two rapes, which excluded rapes he had committed during the course of the murders. He committed his crimes over a three-year period between 1989 and 1992. You interviewed Jacques over two days for four hours each. Can you describe your first impression of Jacques to us? How did he appear to you physically? Were there mannerisms he presented with that struck you at first? Yeah, I suppose because I I took down notes of, of course, how he looked, how he moved, because all of that is part of the research process. Certainly in psychology, it's it's part of getting a, a pen sketch or a clinical impression of the person. Jacques was sort of medium height and bold, quite slim, short dark hair and moustache and sort of heavy stubble, dressed in normally the sort of the green prison fatigues, the mm-hmm. prison uniform with brown jersey and sort of loafer shoes. And the overall impression that struck me was that, that he looked slightly shabby, <laughs> even, even when compared with other prisoners. Which which surprised me a bit because as as we'll find out, Jacques was at one point a, a police officer, and I think I'd I'd expecting someone neater. Mm. And he, he also tended to sort of slouch. So the impression I got of him was it's quite a phrase and reflecting on it, was he looked like just a bit of a slacker. <laughs> you know, sort of this chilled out, just just a bit zoned out slacker. So as if you hadn't known who he was, certainly not in some of the physically intimidating at all. Or physically impressive, rather. No, you know, sort of mm. slightly stooped shoulders, small, almost sort of feminine hands, and big dark eyes. So, mm. not physically intimidating. Okay. You noted in your paper that Jacques had a high school education, and he presented as relatively intelligent, but he was a slow reader and writer, and he struggled with his vocabulary when you asked certain questions. What sort of questions did he find difficult to answer and why do you think he struggled with verbalizing himself in those contexts? The questions he really struggled with, because in most cases, Jacques was like really meticulous about describing things correctly. Mm. You know, sometimes when you're interviewing someone, they'll give you a question and then you'll reflect it back to them to make sure you've understood it right. Sure. If I'd understood it incorrectly or I chose just a, a wrong word, he would insist on the, the correct form. But when, when he struggled to verbalize himself was anything related to emotions. And it was sort of to such a degree that the impression I was left with wasn't that he just struggled to verbalize emotions. He actually struggled to understand or experience emotions. Mm. He was quite open and honest about that. Uh, at one point, sort of stating quite openly, I, I don't, I don't understand emotions. So, because I'd asked him, "Do you feel regret?" Mm-hmm. and he said, "Well, no, I don't." Not at all. It's a bit surprising because most people would want to give an impression that they regret their terrible crime. Because as humans, we, we want to make other humans like us. Yeah. Uh, and he said, uh, "He said, no, I don't." I said, "Oh, why is that?" And he was like, "How do you feel regret? What does it feel like?" You know, I know what Angus feels like. I know what happiness feels like. And sadness kind of like anger, but I, I just don't understand it. And I think another researcher who'd also interviewed Exton described quite well is that he, it was like someone trying to describe the rules of cricket to you 
having never seen a game yeah. or played it. So that was an area he struggled to articulate himself very well. That's a, quite a profound statement. You know, as humans, we we expect other humans to understand what we would assume are basic emotions. So it must have been quite shocking for someone <laughs> to look at you and say, what, what does regret feel like? How do you, <laughs> how do you yeah. actually describe that? My goodness. And, and I, I think that was compared to a lot of the other, the other guys I'd spoken to, the other um, serial murderers I spoke to. Jacques was quite unusual in that regard. So that certainly wasn't typical. Yeah. Ironically, I found him quite likable as a result. Hmm. He did come across as quite frank. Hmm. He wasn't trying to deceive me. He wasn't trying to paint himself in a good light or, or lead me down the garden path. Sure. And I, I started finding, as the longer we talked, I found a lot of his anecdotes and the way he expressed himself actually quite funny. Hmm. Because he came across as often having a very dry and ironic sense of humor. <laughs> Now, it's hard to tell whether that irony was simply because he didn't comprehend emotion or whether it was intentional, but yeah. it certainly wasn't an, an unpleasant, chilly experience. You mentioned that Jacques had this difficulty with expressing emotions, not just expressing it, but he didn't actually seem to comprehend what those emotions meant or how it felt to feel the emotions. Would you? that sort of lack of emotional understanding down to some level of psychopathy? You know, I even though he wasn't, to my knowledge, sort of diagnosed with psychopathy, and also I certainly at the time of doing the research, I, I sometimes had a problem with the label of psychopath mm. because, of course, if you've killed five people, people are going to just automatically label you a psychopath, <laughs> whether or not. But more recently, actually, I was listening to a podcast about Andy McNabb, who is a British uh, author, formerly part of the British Special Forces, and got captured in Iraq and mm. went on to become a best-selling author. And he was on this podcast because he had, just as part of his um, authoring duties, volunteered to be tested on a psychopathy test. And they found out that he was a psychopath. Oh, wow. And he was blissfully discussing this in, in an interview, just fairly cheerful, going, yeah, 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 I, I'm, I'm definitely a psychopath. And the, his, A, his indifference to how other people might respond reminded me a bit of Jacques. But even more, he went on to describe his, the process by which he understands emotion. He called it, it was something called cold empathy. So you or I, if, if I saw you crying, I'd get an immediate sort of feeling in my chest, oh, Nicole's upset, I need to comfort her. Mm. Andy McNabb described it as, well, he had to learn, okay, when someone is crying, I need to sit down and comfort them and get some flowers. It's not because I feel bad, but I realize that actually that's just the done thing. And there was some elements of this sort of this cold empathy in, in how Jacques responded to the people in his life, certainly. Sure. Yeah, I think very important to to clarify that term psychopath, which I'm glad you did for us, because you know, it's so widely used in mainstream media and, you know, true crime and often used incorrectly. So I think it's very important that we clarify that. 
Definitely. It's, it's kind of like the term, ser- I've been trying to stick quite diligently to serial murder because there's a definition similar for serial murder. Mm. Something like serial killer or psychopath, we use it so much that it, it becomes, well, overused, of course, mm. but it starts to become unhelpful. It starts to become similar to calling someone evil, mm. which Yes, it's dramatic, but it doesn't actually help you understand what they did and why. Absolutely. I agree. So let's maybe get into Jacques' background and his childhood. He was an only child, but he wasn't the only child born to his parents. I found his retelling and his knowledge of the circumstances around this quite interesting. Can you maybe tell us more about his family and how he came to be an only child? Yeah. So Jacques, you know, uh, he he was telling me how um, before he was born, his mother had two other children who died either in childbirth or shortly afterwards. And I suppose what struck me the most about this was his indifference. You know, a characteristic phrase he, he used when he was tiring of a description was sort of all oh, whatever. And that was almost the description. He didn't really, he hadn't really found out much about, you know, how old were the other children when they died? How did his parents feel about it? It was just like, yeah, no, it's just something that happened. And then along I came. Sure. It's, it's almost, <laughs> you know, obviously all families are different and, you know, you don't know what the, the parents' perspective was. But, I mean, if, if I knew that my mother had two children before me and that, you know, I'd at least want to know what happened. You know, perhaps you wouldn't pry down to, you know, if it was too raw, but you'd at least ask the general questions around it. Yeah. In Jock's own words, he stated that he doesn't really care about that sort of thing. I guess there's, I guess there's something to be said for honesty. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he describes his parents in quite interesting terms. He, he describes his father as being disinterested in him and his mother as being extremely strict. He doesn't ever seem to speak about either parents in loving terms or with a sense of closeness. Do you think that detachments from his parents, especially his mother, was due to his inability to understand his own emotions? Or do you think that inability stemmed from that unemotional relationship with his mother? You know, I think it's really difficult to tell. Yeah. And... Like a chicken, a would, chicken or the egg situation. Yeah, yeah. Th- that 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 is the difficulty, and I think it would probably be unfair to blame his parents or assume that just because he was unemotional that they felt unemotional towards him. But you are absolutely right in describing his uh, his relationship with his family. It it did seem sort of quite cold, quite distant. Jacques does, after lots of prompting, he does say, you know, I I wish my dad could have been more involved with me. Mm. You know, but at the stage, I I didn't really think about it. He didn't pay special attention to me. Um, And that was sort of probably a contrast to his mum, where he just, he described her as pretty strict. And he did say, you know, I didn't feel that there was ever any really special attention paid for me, sort of asking how can I help you or or speaking about some of the emotional things he was going through. Mm. But again, and I suppose maybe I'm, you know, slightly different from when I did the interviews because I'm a parent myself. And sometimes I do feel 
an element of sympathy towards his parents because they might have just been unable to draw him out, might not have been unwilling. It's possible that they might have tried and he didn't open up and disclose. But I suppose to, to give a cliche, I guess, you would have seen his parents as sort of a, a fairly strict Afrikaner family. Mm, you know, it was true. discipline and it was church. Yeah, and, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of boys and girls lived in families exactly like that and emerged from them as, you know, participating citizens of society and didn't end up killing anyone. So we certainly can't blame the the background. (laughs) No. So his relationship sort of seemed to be characterized by sort of distance and that he didn't really feel a strong bond with them. He doesn't directly criticize them, Mm. but he will sometimes make sort of indirect or implied criticisms of listing the stuff they they didn't do with him. Mm. So he did, you know, as you said, he sort of did come out with a sense of loneliness and isolation. Sure. His mother actually caught him masturbating on several occasions when he he was a child slash young teenager, I guess. And she showed concern about this, I would assume probably due to her religious beliefs, but his father seems to ignore it. Would you say that he seemed to be abnormally sexualized for this age or do you think there was anything that formed around this that maybe played into his his rape fantasies in in future you know i'd I'd honestly say no okay he didn't describe himself as excessively sexualized and he didn't really describe sort of him being caught by his mum as a particularly traumatic event it was kind of like yeah she caught me whoops it's shock we're talking about yeah, exactly <laughs> it's like you know it's no stress i just carried on sure you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's probably worth sort of commenting here because i think it comes out so often in true crime narratives particularly and mm. um, people will come and have a certain uh, perspective on what motivates these sorts of offences. And a really popular one is a nice Freudian one. So it all comes back to sex. It all comes back to sort of repression and sexual fantasy. Mm. And actually, if you look at what Jacques says about himself in his interviews, that doesn't appear to be the case. So yes, even though he committed a sexual offence, certainly the, the story that leads up to him isn't one of repressed sexual desire and out-of-control sexual fantasies. It's, it's something a bit different and mm. something maybe a bit more interesting. Sure. During his school years, Jacques said he wasn't particularly popular, but he had a decent amount of interactions with school friends and mem- members of the opposite sex. Despite this, he still reported feeling a great sense of isolation and loneliness Do you think that even then maybe he was acknowledging on some level that he was different from his peers in maybe in a way he couldn't fully understand, but sensed to to a certain extent? I think certainly he, he described himself often as sort of isolated and he had an inability to express emotion. Sure. And he, he sort of, he does link the two together, saying, well, maybe if I could understand how I was feeling, then I wouldn't feel so lonely or I wouldn't feel so isolated. Okay. 
He took great pains when I said, well, did you hate the situation? He said, no, 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 I didn't hate it. But I think there was definitely a lot of ambivalence in, in how he felt about his loneliness and his separation from others. Sure. From what you having said that he's, he found it very difficult to understand what an emotion was, I wonder if he even knew what loneliness was. Was, was what he was feeling really loneliness or was it something else that he put the loneliness label on? You know, it would be very difficult to say. I think, yeah. I think it would be probably unfair to describe himself as completely emotionless. But the way sure. the term he used, he said, I can't understand any emotion that's smaller yeah. than the big emotions of anger and sadness. Right. So I think he probably he had a feeling of, of loneliness. He just didn't quite know, I don't think, what to do about that mm. or, or how to tackle mm. it. Okay. Um, and he, might, he sort of would implicitly blame his parents, so maybe they, they could have drawn me out more. Sure. But he did definitely shy away from when I tried to prompt him more and almost impose a, a, a story on him of, you know, did your loneliness drive you to do what you do? But, well, no, not really. I just felt lonely or whatever. <laughs> a la Jacques. Yeah, a la Jacques. <laughs> so Jacques started Stealing while he was at school. He stole from his mother's handbag, for instance. And when he describes this, he seems to be almost reminiscing about it with a sense of fondness. He seems to believe that stealing was a harmless childhood prank, or at least that's how it comes across to me. Do you see this type of offending in in early teens a lot in serial murderers? And do you think maybe that? This could have been a warning sign of future offending if anyone was paying attention? Yeah, absolutely. I think that Jock stealing from handbags was actually quite significant to him mm. and in the development of his offending. To answer your second question first is, <laughs> you know, I don't think you could always say just because someone sort of steals in their, in their adolescent years, they'll, they'll go on to become a serial murderer. What was interesting with Jacques is that he initially sort of linked, whenever he spoke about being lonely or isolated as a child, mm. he would kind of segue into a description of stealing from handbags. And later, when he was reflecting on his wider offending, you know, what I found at the time, it sort of seemed incongruous. He'd, we'd be discussing murder and rape, and then he'd segue, it was like that time I stole from my mum's handbag. So there was that segue between sort of loneliness, stealing from the handbags, and then he's later offending. Yeah. And as he discussed it later, he started to speak of it almost as if it was the beginning of an addiction. Mm. He almost described it as, in the terms you'd use to describe a drug addiction, started small, I didn't realize it would get out of control. So especially when he was young, it was kind of that almost lethal triangle of loneliness and theft and a growing addiction which started to, to drive it and you started to get a sense especially as he got older that it was leading to his offending increasing momentum so he was almost becoming addicted to the thrill of committing crimes or doing things that he knew he shouldn't be doing and i think it was a thrill he struggled to articulate it as such yeah. You know, he wouldn't say, oh, I got such a kick out of that. Mm. But he'd sort of go, well, you know, it was fun. And um, when I was lonely, uh, I would do it. And, you know, I realized that actually it was the start of something. 
interestingly, when I asked him, did he ever have nightmares? He said, yeah, sometimes I, I think about the offending, but I think about stealing from my mum's handbag, which, wow. you know, gives an idea that perhaps it was what seemed like a minor detail was to him yeah. um, pretty significant. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, well, you know, with all that we know he's done, he focuses on that as almost one of the worst, the, the thing that he almost seems to be traumatized about having done. That's fascinating. He certainly, as far as he could reflect, it did seem quite important. But as you see, he's, so it's, you know, his motives as they develop are quite different from, from what you'd expect in someone who, who raped and murdered. Of course. After Jacques left school, he seemed to have no direction. His parents were pushing him to get a job, and he describes in his interview with you waiting for army conscription call-up. But he wasn't in the first round of conscription, so he was left to his own devices. He applied to the police and the post office, both of which were unsuccessful, and then he ended up being hired by the railway police. I found it interesting that he applied for jobs where he would sort of be in a position of power. Do you think that that was a sign, just a sign of the times, of what sort of jobs were available? Or do you think that maybe he was actually looked to exert his power over others in choosing those professions? I think it's actually, it was the first. I think he was just quite passive. You know, while any sort of developing thievery, he was becoming more and more adventurous, you know, sneaking into people's houses, going in um, during the daytime, being daring. Mm -hmm. That was a real contrast to how Jacques was in normal life when he was just really quite passive. You know, as we said when we were speaking before, his vibe was like, oh, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. I applied for the jobs. I went for the first one that would take me. He was living almost two paths of his life. Like the, there was the Jacques that was passive and just bumbling on with life. And then there was the Jacques that was on the, the thrill ride, on the roller coaster of this, you know, the thievery and his increasing criminality. I think that's probably true, and I think you'll see as it uh, as it'll develop. You, you mm. know, you start to find that separation between the two. You know, we could all hypothesize, and not a lot of reasons for those two tracks in his life developing. But one simple reason is, if you've got this little thrill-seeking, adventurous part, you don't have to deal with the rest of your life. Mm. You know, the passivity, the sense of isolation. Yeah. the loneliness, you know, you can just bumble on because you've got this little addiction in the corner that you're feeding. Yeah. So around the same time, Jacques became involved with what he describes as his first real relationship with a young lady who would become his fiance. I found a few things about his description of this relationship quite interesting. The first was when he describes this girl as being the first person he felt at ease around. But when he goes on to elaborate why that was, he says things like, she showed me that she thinks I'm important and she showed me that she loved me. Do you think that maybe that resulted from his relationship with his parents, that not being demonstrative in terms of affection? Or is it maybe a power thing for him? I think it was probably she did show him affection. Again, I think it, you know, as, as his relationship developed, 
there was still that sort of, that, almost that slacker attitude of, of slight disengagement. But I think because she seemed keen on him, he was like, yeah, well, I'll go along with this. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. So the, the second thing that I found quite interesting about this relationship was the way that she actually became his fiance. So he describes having had sex with her for the first time. And when they were finished, she allegedly said to him, you know, you have to marry me now. To which he responded, yes, I'll marry you. And from that point, he considered her his fiance. Now, I'm guessing that probably had a lot to do. Yeah, so romantic. Uh, I'm getting, exactly. guessing. I'm guessing that had a lot to do with the social parameters at the time in terms of women not being socially free to have a sexual life outside of marriage. But it just seems so devoid of emotion. Do you think that maybe he felt so at ease with this woman because she was maybe not also terribly emotionally developed herself? That would be hard to say, and, yeah. and he doesn't really extrapolate on her in the interview, but it could be a reason. I mean, this is speaking from my entirely personal view. Mm. He kind of seems really passive, and he's kind of like, yeah, okay, then we'll get married. Um, and he describes another time where she's wanting to get intimate, and he, gets, he keeps getting distracted by the TV until she turns it off. And I'm thinking... You know what? He doesn't strike me as a, as a dynamic Casanova sort. Maybe she wasn't necessarily terribly um, that way inclined herself. Yeah. I think it's also quite interesting. He never refers to his fiance by her name. Hmm. And, you know, I only realized again when I was going through the interviews, he doesn't refer to anyone by their name. He doesn't refer to victims by the name. He would have known the name from, from court, but he. So when he, later, when he starts to speak about his victims, he refers to each event as an incident or a case, as if it was a police officer. <laughs> but he never says his fiancé's name or his parents' name or any of his friends' names, actually. Wow. Do you think that's him not seeing people as, as people? Or do, what do you think is behind that? Difficult to say. It could be just a linguistic shortcut. But I think there is something about his sense of emotional detachment. Mm. You know, even he, he made comments about not having many friends in school, but mm. they mentioned the one person he, he liked more than the others. You know, he's, he's, he said, I'd describe him as a good friend. I died while I were at high school. Sure. And I asked, you know, how did that feel? And he said, well, I knew everyone has to die sometime. <laughs> and he just happened to die then. So I, I just got on with things. So, um, and then also, what did he die of? This is another I can't remember. Wow, you know, so what would it be for you know, for me thinking of my friends in high school? I mm. certainly remember what they died of, Absolutely. and I would probably, I probably remember that as a far more traumatic event, but to him, it, it didn't seem to really make a mark. Wow, so it was also around this time, the same time that he started the relationship with his fiance, that his offending progressed into housebreaking. So he started stealing and then he eventually got it into his head that if he could steal from people and be in their houses, then perhaps if there was a woman alone, it would almost be a natural progression to rape the woman if he had the opportunity. So it was interesting to me how he saw his crimes almost as a, as a process, as though he were on a roller coaster and there was just no getting off and 
one action was always going to lead into something more serious. There always seems to be the sense of inevitability with the, the way that he describes how things progressed for him. Uh, and I think that's that's astute of you. And I think the, the, the metaphor of a roller coaster does does apply. It was just the feeling that this thing was getting out of control and he, he didn't have the break. Interestingly, also, if, if you start to reflect on the separation between the passive Jacques and the more adventurous criminal Jacques, mm. it's almost like he, he, he didn't have the positive relationships or the positive influences from one half of his life to stop him doing uh, bad stuff in the other. Right. Um, I guess, you know, it, it's, I suppose mm. your listeners could do a little thought experiment. Like mm. think of your worst habit, mm. the most destructive thing you've done in your life. And then think about what stopped you doing that thing. Mm. And quite often it would be the influence of others yeah. or your influence from other parts of your life, mm. you know, a hobby, a relationship, that conversation with a parent or a friend. That's very true. But without those, these things kind of could grow. And also if he hides them, because as he said, as you've mentioned, there's never anyone I could speak to, speak to about my feelings. Yeah. You know, to, to mix our metaphors, it's, it's a bit like a plant that kind of grows in the darkness. Mm. And without any light, it just grows more and more and more. Yeah. Well, I wonder if, if that would have been enough. I mean, we'll never know. But, you know, I wonder if he had that one person to reach out to and to, you know, sort of, as you say, cast a light on, you know, th- throw him a lifeline, if that would have made a difference. It's, it's an interesting yeah, it would, yeah, and the, so often when, you, when you're looking at uh, serial murderers and the events in their life, mm. it does seem that combination of circumstance and just bad luck. Yeah. Um, although having said that, I did ask Jacques, you know, if you got married, you know, and if you had that closer relationship with your fiancé, do you think you would have stopped the offending? And he said, no, nah, it wouldn't have made any difference at all. Hmm. So yeah, uh, well, okay, there, there goes tell. that idea. <laughs> well, you know, you never know. But yeah. having said that, you know, if it could have been a conversation, or if he could have channeled his his thieving into something different, sure, things may have turned out differently. And that is yeah. that is the tragedy, as you never can tell. Yeah, absolutely. As we get into Jacques' murders, I found it interesting that he had victims of different races. So he had black victims and he had white victims. Is it quite rare for serial murderers to have victims from different race groups? And do you think that with Jacques, it was more just a moment of opportunity rather than having specifically selected a victim by certain criteria? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it was more for him just a moment of opportunity. Mm. He never described race as a significant factor. Mm. And, you know, serial murderers would, those I spoke to, some, you know, would choose victims from both racial groups, some very specific about one or the other. More often than not, it was more to do with opportunity and proximity Mm. rather than specific targeting strategy. So in Jacques' case, his first victim happened to be on the scene when he decided to 
uh, to burgle his neighbor's house. Yeah. His decision was quite mm. impulsive. Mm. I guess that probably speaks to his passive nature as well. You know, he's, he's not going out and looking for it to a certain extent. It's, he's coming across it and it's sort of that, oh, well, attitude again. You know, oh, well, here it is, we're, you know, off we go <laughs> type of thing. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm on the roller coaster. Let's just let's yeah. ride it to its conclusion. Sure. The first murder that you mentioned was of a black female who lived behind Jacques' parents' house. She was the domestic worker of the family that lived in the main house and she lived in an outside room. Jacques didn't actually rape the woman because he claims that he found her in her bed she started to struggle, and then by the time he got hold of her, he didn't want to rape her anymore. Now, the woman's room was set on fire, and Jacques claims that she died from smoke inhalation. Although in Jacques' retelling, he claims not to know how she became unconscious. So he just says she just passed out. Even when Jacques describes how the woman and her room were set on fire, he almost denies any culpability. In his mind, things just happened. Her clothing somehow caught on fire and landed up on her face, quite by happenstance. And then a table set a light on his way out. In his words, it's just what I thought to do because it just happened. How do you view this first incident and, and his description of how it being something that just once again happened? Yeah, I mean, there's two two elements there. The first is the simplest, is he was quite impulsive. Yeah. And he was able to almost think on his feet. He said, I saw a woman there and I thought, right, let's go for it. Yeah. And that's a pattern we'll see later again. Second one is is a pattern that'll come out right in the end of his offending. Mm. And his description of this offense was quite chaotic. Mm. It's jumbled. It doesn't really make sense. Yes. And when you compare it with the meticulous detail he described his others, his other um, offences, his other crimes, it does really stand out as, as being uncharacteristically jumbled and confused. Mm. Now, one reason for that, I believe, is that he hadn't yet worked out the story in his mind. He almost raced ahead of his own story. No. And because he didn't have that preparation and that justification in his own head about what he was doing, mm the retelling itself came out as, as quite jumbled, you know, and possibly there could be, there's an element of, and again, I saw this in a few serial murderers I spoke to, when they felt more guilty about a certain offence, the, the narrative was jumbled. Mm. And, and I wonder whether in this first, because he wasn't in control, circumstances seemed to run away from him. Mm. And um, maybe he sort of goes, well, actually, I, I didn't mean to kill her. I didn't, it, it just sort of happened. And I don't know why. Hmm. Stop talking about it. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So the police reports put this first victim's cause of death down to strangling. But Jacques doesn't seem to even connect him having had his hand around her neck to her dying. He even claims that he didn't realize she was dead until he heard later on that she died. Do you think that he really didn't realize that he'd strangled her to death? Or is this just him, you know, as you said, being a victim of a jumbled story? Or is it something manipulative? What do you think is behind that? Uh, I think there could be a couple of reasons. I think that there is the possibility that he was genuinely unaware. 
Yeah. But also I think there's a possibility that it, it made him feel less guilty about killing someone unintentionally. Sure. And just saying, well, I, I didn't know. Okay. He seems to have quite a long cooling off period between the first and the second offence. Just before the second offence, he had an argument with his fiance's father because he brought her home after her curfew. And this actually almost ended up with the dissolution of the relationship. And it actually did contribute to the postponing of his marriage to the woman. We often hear that serial murderers are triggered by periods of stress into committing their next offense. Do you maybe think that's what happened with Jacques here? I think there is a possibility. I don't think he'd always make that connection himself because he didn't have that emotional articulateness Mm. and sometimes even insight into his own emotions. I I don't think he'd necessarily make the connection, Mm. but I do think it is plausible that there's a connection. And certainly when we go on, hopefully to discuss other serial murders offences, that is a pattern you see of it's not just one thing that goes wrong. Mm. There's normally two or three areas of the person's life, the pillars of their life, two or three of them get hit at the same time. Sure. Um, And then that tips people over the edge. Mm. Again, very similar to how things are when, you know, you, I, or any of your listeners have a a tough time in our personal life. Sure. It's because it's not just one thing that goes wrong. It's two or three things that all happen at once. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So also at this time, the railway police were amalgamated with the police force and Jacques was actually put into the riot squad. So he moved out of his parents' home and into the police barracks. As part of his posting with the riot squad, Jacques was issued with a service firearm and this seemed to encourage him to increase the level of violence in his attacks. Do you think that this was his need for power coming out or maybe he felt that he was more powerful now that he had a gun than than he had been before? I certainly think it was um, very unfortunate that he did get a firearm. Also, him moving into the riot squad was stressful for him. Mm. Not because, you know, as part of a riot squad in in mid-80s South Africa, you'd be exposed to a lot of violence. He seemed quite indifferent to violence he saw in, in the townships. Mm. It was when he was within the, the, the railway police, that was actually quite an adventure. You know, he got mm. to travel abroad with gold shipments. He went to Amsterdam. He got to see porn, which was banned in South Africa at the time. Although he said, you know, yeah, I saw it. I didn't buy any of it. So he moved <laughs> from that quite, um, <laughs> he moved from typical Jacques. He says, yeah, I was okay, but I'm not going to get too into that. Yeah. Um, So he goes from quite an exciting job to being stuck in the barracks in suburbia. But going back to your question, having the firearm, he didn't associate it so much with power, but more with being able to control. He's saying, like, now I can control the circumstances. And he knew it was almost a case of like, well, kind of want to rape a woman. That's an experiment I want to try. Mm. In my um, on my next addiction, in his own words, he said, "I want to I want to experiment of having sex without a condom with someone. That that would be interesting to me." And the the first offence that went wrong with his attempt to rape someone, mm. now he's got a pistol, and now he can control the person, control the circumstance, and complete that experiment. Mm. Okay. 
Jacques was quite brazen and he broke into the home of his next victim several times before the rape actually occurred. He said to you that he'd even taken the keys to a BMW that belonged to the occupants and drove it around and then parked the vehicle at the police barracks, which were nearby. He seemed to really enjoy this build-up and almost revels in being inside someone else's house when they aren't there. How did you see this behavior in terms of his process? Yeah, definitely. I think I think there is something, even though he wouldn't have used the terms of, of mm. the, the thrill-seeking and experimenting, going back to the same location two or three times, sort of building up his confidence mm. and almost testing the boundaries a bit. Mm. I think he certainly found it a thrill, but certainly on, on the night of, you know, of his subsequent first rape, he did say, you know, I was going back there to see if there was a, a woman I could have sex with. Sure. Jacques returned to that flat that he'd broken into so many times and he found a white female in her mid-cities alone in bed. He woke her up, held her at gunpoint. He says that she asked him to put the gun down and he did and then he raped her. Weirdly, he says that while he was raping her, his watch was bothering him so he took it off and pushed it under her pillow and then he forgot it there. He claims that the woman then offered him a cigarette and a drink and asked if he'd like to chat. She asked him why he'd taken her car and asked what he'd done with it. There's two things that stand out for me. The first is that he seems really disorganized. It's almost like he's constantly doing things without thinking, like abandoning the victim's car at the police barracks, leaving his watch at the scene of the crime. And then the other thing that stands out for me is his claim that the victim tried to make conversation with him. Of course, we don't know if this is really true and if she did. She could have been trying to get identifying information out of him or maybe even convince him not to kill her. I wonder, though, if he inserts this claim because he's trying to minimize his actions again. Maybe in his mind, if she was having a conversation with him, then maybe his crime wasn't really that bad. I think all of the sort of hypotheses you give could, could be quite accurate. You know, the victim could be trying to talk him down because yeah. she woke up, saw him standing over her, and in, in his own words, saw the, the light on the pistol. I think it was a reflective sight or a night sight. So she saw the light. So obviously she knew he was armed. Um, and she knew she was potentially in mortal danger. Generally, Jacques didn't, in conversation with me, try to minimize his crimes. But one interesting thing I did notice was other researchers have spoken to him, and I, I read some of the other researchers' transcripts. Mm. And it wasn't in relation to this offense. It was in relation to an offense to come. He changed a couple of minor details. And the minor details he changed were to make him look better in the eye of an interviewer or an imagined other. Okay. So I don't know whether he did that here to sort of, actually, I'll put in some conversation because people are less shocked if they hear I spoke with her. It's, it's a possible reason, but then again, it would only be if someone had responded because I don't think Jacques has, has that insight in his own emotions to go, ooh, that sounded a bit bad. I better cover that one up. Yes. Yeah, you're right. 
the, the cooling off period before his next offence is quite a bit shorter than the previous time. This time it's only 20 days. Do you think that indicates that he was finding it more difficult to control himself? I think that's probably right. You definitely get a sense that the offending is now getting out of hand. Okay. So there's sort of an escalation in his behavior. Yeah, going back to your roller coaster. You know, you've got sure. to the top of the hill and now the carriage is, is crashing down the tracks. Mm. Okay. As it become his habit, Jacques broke into the house of his next victim and stole money from her handbag before he returned to commit the actual offense. He really seems to have started connecting, taking the woman's belongings from the handbags to an almost necessary evolution of taking sex from her as well. This victim was 62 years old. She was a white female. And Jacques claims that he found it difficult to rape her because he thinks that due to her age, he was not aroused by her. It seems to me that he was a little bit angry that his experience had been, quote unquote, ruined due to his victim not being young and attractive to him. As when he spoke to you about it, he was constantly derogatory about this victim. He was, and he, he you know, he did use violence towards her. He hit her with a pistol on, on her head. Again, it's, it's that being able to analyze and understand your own emotions. Mm. There, there was an element of derogatoriness in how he described her, and he was sort of like, that experience wasn't that good. But he doesn't really associate sort of her age or her perceived lack of attractiveness to, to how he treated her. He doesn't make that connection. Mm. I suppose what's interesting is how he's, he's not making a separation that, that one could maybe perceive between... It's almost as if it's like it's a relationship in which you're having sex with people. He's, yeah, not, exactly. he's not seeing them as, as rapes. It's just like, yes. oh, well, that one was pretty, that one not so much. Yes. No, I picked that up as well. It, it, it was like he was having a relationship with these people. It was very, quite odd. <laughs> yeah, and I think, it, I think there is just that, that lack of, I suppose actually, no, it's not a lack of emotion. It's an emotional incongruity. You know, what we would assume would be normal, in inverted commas, or a more normal way to respond. Mm is not the same for, for Jacques. Sure. So what was quite interesting to me at this time, it seemed that police were starting to recognize that they had a serial offender and the crimes were being discussed quite regularly at the police barracks where Jacques lived. Police had decided to, to place watchmen on the roofs of the, of the buildings around the area to see if they could spot the prowler. When Jacques discusses this period of time, he doesn't indicate that it really concerned him at all. Of course, it didn't stop him from committing further crimes either. He even says to you at one point that he knew he was going to eventually get caught. And he thinks that this is why he didn't bother wearing gloves or wiping his fingerprints from the scenes. I know people often say that serial killers want to get caught, but I don't always believe that that's the case. Do you think that Jacques did, or do you think that it was just another part of what he believed was an inevitable progression in his sort of criminal journey, if you can call it that? You know, I think it's, I think it's a bit of both. I think he did feel there was a sort of inevitable progression, mm. and he had that sort of passive attitude towards life. 
Mm. And then towards circumstance of like, well, now I'm being carried along by this tide. So I might as well just, just go to the conclusion. Yeah. Going back to your other thing is, do serial murderers want to get caught? I do think, and you know, as we go on, we might come to point of, I do think there reaches a point where even they realize that they are getting beyond their own ability to control themselves, and that becomes quite unpleasant. So a couple I spoke to did express relief at being caught. That's interesting. So Jacques' next offense occurred again 20 days after the last. I don't know if that was planned or if it was a coincidence, but he'd been to the premises at least five times before he actually committed this offense. Several people lived in the house. I got the impression it must have been sort of a commune. And then on the night of the offense, Jacques broke into a room that he hadn't been in before and turned on the light because for some reason he says that he didn't think anyone would be in the room. He found a 27-year-old white female in the bedroom who woke up when he turned the light on. He says at this time he realized that he would have to kill her. He closed the bedroom door and the woman resisted, so he struck her on the head. He says that this dazed her and then he raped her. After raping her, he shot her once in the head. So can you explain his retelling of the crime? Yeah, there was the, the same with, with Jacques. There was that, that impulsiveness, mm. uh, impulsivity. You know, he, he, did, he didn't get fully undressed as he had in his previous offences. Mm. And he said, because she had fought him, I, I wanted to be quick. And then, in, then I'm quoting from our interview, he said, so, okay. Then she looked at me. Then I pulled out the weapon and, and pulled off the shot. I just turned the weapon and then shot her. I was still on her. And, you know, you, you saw that from the, the crime scene photographs is that the, the bullet had entered underneath her chin. Mm. So he'd obviously just swiveled the gun around and, and fired. I asked him, so did you decide on the point of the moment to turn the weapon or did you think about it when you were busy and said, I must shoot her? Mm. He goes, oh, maybe I couldn't say whether I decided to kill her when I turned on the light or when I was finished, I decided to shoot her. I, I can't remember precisely when he decided. He said, but because the light was on, uh, she had to die. And then I asked, so for the first rapes, if the light were, was on, would they be dead? And he said, yeah, maybe. By the time the second case, I'd already decided, if they see me, I'll shoot them. Wow. Yeah, and I guess he actually switched the light on himself. Didn't occur to him. <laughs> Again, I, I think it, it almost had the, the feeling when he described it, of whoops, messed up bit of an accident he didn't expect someone to be there he turned the light on saw a woman then thought well okay since i'm here i'll I'll quickly rape her on a she's seen me i'd better kill her and there was an element that he did lift the duvet off the floor and put it over on her yes Um, and i know the senior investigating officer when i spoke with him said maybe this was jacques maybe it was a bit of a undoing on Mm. his part which is you know what you see sometimes it's at scenes where the offender is expressing an unconscious regret for his actions. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because with the other crimes, I think he left, uh, he would always leave the duvet laying on the floor next to the bed. And this was the only yes. one where he'd covered her up. Yeah. Okay, interesting. As you mentioned earlier, Jacques stated that he decided at this point that if any of the victims saw his face, he was going to kill them. 
Two weeks after this murder, he committed his next offense, again in a home he'd been watching for a while. He entered and found a 27-year-old white female who'd been in the process of getting up to go to the toilet. He raped this woman and then claims to have smoked a cigarette with her. Interestingly, he claims that he enjoyed this rape the most because it lasted the longest and he had the most control. He then instructed the woman to go and wash herself. When you asked him why he did this, he told you that he just wanted to buy some time so he could go and get dressed and go through her handbag. Did this ring true to you? I mean, he's got a gun. There's no reason why he couldn't just control her for long enough to get dressed and go through her bag. It's hard to always identify the reasons. Is that because there's an element of impulsivity on his part? Sure. So I said, to why, why did you go tell her to go bath and stuff? I don't know. I just decided. You know, I just said, go bath. You know, what was interesting in that offense, this was the one where the body was found in the bathtub, mm. you know, still sort of naked in a bath with a, a little bit of water in. And the victim. I think obviously seen him raise the pistol and had turned her head to one side. Mm. So you could see from where the, the bullet had entered. And actually, I do remember thinking at the time, you know, that was quite a cold-blooded execution, really. Yeah. What was interesting, that this was the example I mentioned earlier, when he spoke with another researcher, mm. he said of this victim, there was, a, there was a small window in the bathroom and I saw her reaching up as if she was trying to escape and then I shot her. I don't personally believe that. I think it was just a kind of, well, it's it's an inconvenience and I I need to get rid of her. So around this time, it seems that the police had actually started realizing that it was quite possible that the offender they were looking for was a police officer. As they ran a fingerprinting parade at the barracks where Jacques just sidestepped it by not attending. This close attention to his offences seemed to have put him off a little bit because he waited about five months before he committed his next offence, and it was in a totally different area. It was, however, an area he still knew, though, because it was very close to his fiancé's parents' house. In your experience, do these offenders choose the geographical areas in which they offend Do they seem to prefer areas they know or would they prefer to offend in areas they can't be linked to? Generally, in my experience, and this is a rule that's true of of all offenders, is people prefer to offend in areas they know or areas that they're somewhat familiar with. Mm. So I know there's a number of studies done in various sorts of crimes from burglars, arsonists, rapists, serial murder that tend to demonstrate people have a radius of offending that they will go for. Tens in serial murder or in serial offences, it's earlier and later in the offending cycle. Or the, in the series of offence, people tend to be more limited to just offending in areas where they are quite familiar. All right, so I guess that sort of explains why Jacques would have initially offended in the area around the barracks and then when he was forced to move he he still picked an area that he was a little more familiar with as well in terms of where his fiance's parents live. Absolutely and it fits and especially this offense seems to, to fit with a sense that 
wherein he was he was becoming more reckless. Like he, there was always an element of impulsivity, mm. but in, you know, in the the two crimes previous to this, he um, he did some reconnaissance beforehand, sussed out the area, knew where he was going. Mm. This one seemed almost uh, a sort of off the cuff decision. Oh, I'm I'm just going to quickly hop over there and sure. and try my luck. Yeah. So Jacques' description of his next crime against a 74-year-old white female was actually quite shocking, to me at least. He describes breaking into the woman's home and stealing money from her bag. The woman slept through this and the light was on in the room. So he switched it off and he turned on a flashlight that he'd found. He touched the woman to wake her up and she started screaming. So he hit her in the head with the butt of his gun. This did nothing to subdue her, so he shot her in the mouth. The most shocking part of this description for me was when you said that he smiled when he explained how the victim's teeth had flown up into his face when he shot her. How do you avoid showing a reaction when he's describing something like that and smiling at the same time at that moment i think i was more curious mm. as to to why he had smiled it was almost like um it was incongruous you know and his reaction itself was a kind of smile of oh that was a bit odd but when i asked him did you get a fright when she grabbed your hand and and that is why you shot her he said no i didn't get a fright but maybe i just wasn't keen for a struggle and and then i you know, I just shot her. Mm. So I was more curious about his reaction than shocked. I was just struck by the oddness of it. Mm. I also found it interesting at that same scene that Jock considered raping the victim after he'd shot her. Although he claims that he didn't, there's still that, that sudden emergence of almost a necrophiliac tendency that we haven't seen before with him. And he doesn't say to you that the thought repulsed him or that it wasn't something he could have done. He just says it wouldn't help to rape her. Did this consideration of necrophilia surprise you at that point? Yeah, I think it did. And it did lead me later to consider whether what you saw in this offense was almost the habit and the template for his previous offenses that he'd built up was starting to break down. And it was an interesting choice of words when he said it wouldn't help. Mm. So I don't know whether he was feeling actually it, it wouldn't in any way be satisfying or he was looking and he comes on to this later and I'll pick it up again. Is He was so maybe searching for something in the process of committing rapes. Mm. That's very interesting, actually. I hadn't thought about that. Jacques' final victim was also the youngest, and the offence was very different from the others in that it occurred during the day, and he'd never been inside the victim's house before he entered on the day that the offence occurred. His victim was a 17-year-old white female. She was alone inside the house, but there was a gardener on the premises, which Jacques claims he was not aware of at the time. So Jacques entered the premises, accosted the young girl, and forced her into a bedroom where he removed her shirt. Jacques claims that she then told him that she would remove her own pants, which she did. When she was naked, the girl seemingly tried to distract Jacques by telling him that there was money in her mother's room. 
He took her there and found 150 rand. He then forced her to lay on the bed and attempted to rape her. He says that he found he couldn't maintain an erection and instead he shot her in the head and left the house. Jacques previously claimed that when he couldn't achieve an erection, it was because his victim was older and therefore not attractive to him. But here he was with the 17-year-old girl, and he again experiences a moment of impotence. I'm wondering if maybe because his process was broken, because he didn't get his reconnaissance time in and and that, that part of his process, maybe that's why he couldn't complete the act? I think that, you know, that could probably be correct, is that, you know, the one, the, the offence he reported sort of enjoying sex the most was the one where he had the most control and he had the most time. Yes. And here, again, like the last, like the offence with the, uh, where he shot, shot the older woman in her mouth, he, mm. it, this one was quite rushed and impulsive, but it was different also. It was, it was broad daylight. Mm. So even though he does report in this offence that he still ejaculated, despite not, you know, not penetrating the victim, mm. so there was still that excitement, but but obviously the combination of adrenaline or the process being thrown meant it, you know, that part of it didn't work for him. Interestingly, I, I asked him, did it bother you, you know, not being able to to wait for me. No, uh, no, it's just one of these things, you know. That, that was exactly so much, just one of these things. Wow. I, I think the thing in this crime, which I found quite shocking, because I, of course, in, in doing these, I was looking through all the crime scene photos. Mm. And the first time I saw the crime scene photo for this, I was like, whoa, that is cold. Mm. Because what you saw on the victim's forehead, right in the middle of her forehead, was a star-shaped gunshot injury. Sure. That's really, you only get a stellate gun injury if the muzzle of the weapon is pressed against the skin when you fire. Yes. So it's basically the gas from the muzzle splits the skin in a very distinct way. Right. And she had one of those. So obviously he had pushed the gun against her forehead while she was awake looking at him in broad daylight. Wow. Um, but also in describing the, this offence, it had that sense of sort of chaos and disorganisation come in and theory sort of suggests that serial murderers burn out. But that was what was mo most remarkable in the stories is that this sort of burnout starts to get reflected in how they tell us about what they do. So in this crime, his story was a little bit sort of chaotic inconsistent and less precise. Mm. It's almost as if, in one sense, he'd sort of overstepped what he felt justified by his story to do. Yeah. So before, he felt justified because he said, well, I was killing to avoid detection. Mm. This seemed, and even the previous murder, seemed a little bit more than that. It's yeah. when the killing to avoid detection started to morph into almost a bit of contempt towards the victims. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can definitely see that that movement there. And, uh, you know, I, as I mentioned already, that was his last victim. But I think if it wasn't, I shudder to think what would have progressed from there.
Jacques' eventual arrest would come as a result of him being narrowed down on a list of police officers who'd moved from one set of barracks to another and the killings that happened in the areas around both barracks. Jacques recalled being summoned in for questioning about the murders. He claims that he swapped his gun for another gun, which he refers to as the station's weapon. I assume that's maybe a pool gun, in order to avoid any evidence being found inside the weapon because of the close contact shots he'd made on his victims, which you just mentioned just now. So Jacques was fingerprinted, and he claims that when they took his fingerprints, he decided that it would just be easier to admit the murders, and he did so. He claimed that he felt relieved when he was arrested, and that's also something you alluded to earlier, because he knew that he would never be able to stop on his own, and if he wasn't caught, he would just carry on killing. Did this come across as genuine to you, or do you think it was a bit of fake bravado to, you know, prove his his prowess? You know, I think it came up as genuine, and this the sense of burnout was was affecting him. Yeah. Because um, perhaps unconsciously, this losing control was was causing him distress. Mm. And also because <laughs> Jacques doesn't didn't seem to be too bothered what people thought of him. Mm. Me included, so he had no reason to put on bravado. I suppose just to go to confirm about the point of, about him sort of losing control. Mm. I'll read. I'll read a section from from the interviews. Mm, he said, "When the the habit of his offending took control, he says it's like when you're drunk. You don't always know what you're doing. The next morning, you don't know how you got to the house. I was drunk. It was not nice to be drunk because I didn't feel in control of myself." He, he then goes on to say after the last murder, he didn't, he didn't feel so daring anymore. He said, I was half glad when they caught me. And I asked him, did, did it feel bad because you had bottled everything up? And he replied, yes, I, I couldn't let things out. I, I was glad that things came to that point. I then asked him, did you feel some outside reason before you got caught? And his reply was, uh, yes, I knew I could never give up. At that time, I didn't care about the consequences or that I wasn't in control. I wanted to be in control. I wanted to get help, but I couldn't because I knew what the consequences were. It was like a drug that you had to have more and more and more. You can't say, I must stop and then just stop. You don't have control. Interestingly, he goes on to say there was a dead feeling inside him. He said he didn't care at all what I was doing to people. It felt for me like I was going dead inside. You don't realize it then, but you realize it now, he says, referring to being in prison. Mm. You see that you were busy dying. Wow. It's almost, you know, the, the phrase, be careful what you wish for because you might just get it. It's on springing to mind. You know, he was seeking out this risk-taking activity and this risk-taking activity snowballed and snowballed and snowballed and he was loving it and and. But the more he got that, the more the other side of Jacques, you know, felt that loss of control and hang on, I'm actually liking this adrenaline, but I don't like the fact that I'm not in control of this anymore. Exactly. And I I asked him, what what were the reasons you couldn't stop? And Jacques sort of paused for thought. And then he said, it was like when I began stealing, it's half fun. But I wouldn't say the murder or rapes were fun. 
I just did them because there was a chance to do them. The excitement brought me to doing it. The sneaking around to kill, to rape, to maybe experiment, to find out how it feels to rape or ejaculate inside a woman. Mm. But to kill is just to kill. I didn't do it to experiment. I didn't do, I just did it because the lights were on. So he said, the, the rapes were before the experience, I asked. His reply was, yeah, maybe I sought something in the rapes. And then I asked him, what did you search for? And his reply was, I don't know. You're searching for something, but you don't get it. Mm. And he goes on saying, maybe that's why I wanted to get caught. Maybe I was searching for something when I committed the crimes, but I didn't know what. Um, maybe I searched for them to have those feelings, but I couldn't handle them. I didn't have the knowledge. And there was maybe that sense that fundamentally what he was searching was some way to overcome the sense of loneliness and isolation. Mm. And it was almost easier rather than confront that central void or central desire, it was easier to kind of metaphorically split your personality in half into the passive everyday genre and the thrill-seeking adventure because it's it's easier than fundamentally addressing yeah. who you are. Absolutely. Um, and being honest, I, I don't think, you know, as I've reflected more on this, I don't think that's unique to offenders. I think no. there's an element of that in all of us. Absolutely. Where we will do things to compensate for for real or perceived flaws or yeah, absences in our life. And it's yeah. sometimes very difficult and takes a lot of strength, mm. you know, to address the heart of a problem that might have been bothering you for many years. Mm. Absolutely, I agree with you. I guess it's just the level of action that's taken that differs. That's really all it is. <laughs> yeah, indeed. You know, but it is, I think it's always important to remember that serial murderers are people as much mm. as you or I. Yeah. And I certainly have I've almost taken a warning <laughs> mm. from, from reading these a lot of these offender transcripts and from meeting them, a warning about what not to do with your life if you want to keep yourself happy and healthy. Yeah, well, if it is ever was a, a good cautionary tale, this is certainly <laughs> one of them. <laughs> exactly, yeah. but it, it, it might be one you can't tell in most schools. But Absolutely. there certainly is. Yeah. There are lessons to be drawn <laughs> for all of us. I think. Absolutely, Jacques says that he was spending his time in prison trying to better understand his emotions. And he told you about some pen pals uh, he'd had, with, which he also used to try and connect with people. Interestingly, you mentioned that when he speaks about these pen pals, it's the only time that he appeared to be animated, and he actually mentions them by name. Do you see this as a sign that he may be capable of some level of rehabilitation? Rehabilitation is always really difficult. And I mean, and I know, so laying my cards on the table, I don't believe anyone is completely beyond hope or redemption. Yeah. I think it is interesting that uh, the pen pals who he was getting some emotional affirmation from mm. obviously became more human to him. A lot of the pen pals had started writing to him when South Africa slid the death sentence. So they were writing to, you know, someone on death row. Okay. I think the thing he learned through the pen pals was uh, the, the process we mentioned in earlier when we were speaking of, of cold empathy. Mm. He showed me the letter he wrote to them introducing himself. Mm. And it didn't sound like Jacques. 
<laughs> it didn't sound like the rather indifferent slacker, a little bit emotionally cold, sitting opposite me. What what sounded like to me was he, he used a different way of expressing himself. He said, you know, I'm I'm sorry for what I did. I I was in a really bad place. I'm seeking I, I think I was wrongfully accused, you know, and I truly regret everything I've done. And I asked him about the wording and he said, well, I learned that if I explain things in a different way, they don't, uh, they don't write back. <laughs> so he learned that process of actually, wow. this is how I need to interact with other people in order to, in order to maintain a relationship, which, which is progress. Absolutely. I, I guess maybe to a certain extent, he's still, he's, you know, he's applying what he used to do on the outside in terms of, watching the world to see how he should react you know he's just doing it on a different level now but at least he's got some sort of awareness of his impact on other people and yeah i suppose that's that is progress yes <laughs> it is <laughs> so something that's that often comes up in the the podcast that i do is parents relationships with offenders you know as much as these people may be made out to be monsters in our minds. They are still the son or daughter of someone who gave them life. So it's often quite difficult, I know, for myself and for my listeners to sort of put this parent-child relationship together when, when the child has committed some horrific offenses, sometimes against the family. So in this case, Jacques mentions that his relationship with his parents hasn't really changed for the better, at least, during his incarceration. And he thinks that his mother may be afraid of him. In your experience, are parents of offenders like Jacques ever really capable of fully accepting their child's guilt? Or maybe even a part that they may have played in the development of that offender's capability to kill? You know, my my research didn't really consider sort of the the role of the parents, and I, I certainly I I wouldn't be able to say mm. how Jacques' parents responded or the responsibility they took. I mean, the one thing that's interesting is I I believe Jeffrey Dahmer's father mm. wrote a, a book about his feelings about towards his son, and certainly in that book there was a huge amount of guilt. Mm. You know the the Jeffrey Dahmer's dad feeling huge regret for the the opportunities he'd missed to turn his life around, or the you know the things he had done wrong as a parent. So I can't imagine almost any worse torture for yeah. a parent than um, than having a child who does that. So. Uh, once I suppose sympathy and understanding, certainly to those who, at least in Jock's parents' case, there, there wasn't any really obvious abuse. Mm. Um, some some serial murderers had truly horrendous childhoods, you know, yeah. uh, whereas Jacques, by comparison, seemed relatively mundane. Mm. So, just to close off. What would you say that you took away from your time with Jacques, if anything? And would you say that there was anything significantly different about him that you didn't see in any of the other offenders that you interviewed? 
Yeah, I think that the one thing I took away from this interview and from rereading it was I was very focused on trying to find motives. Mm. And in a way that misled me. Mm. Because only later I realized that it was actually the depth of his isolation and how the various aspects of his life were described in isolation from each other. Mm. And that wasn't always, that wasn't entirely different. But what was striking is the degree of that sense of isolation. And I, I only noticed that later when I was analyzing it. And then the other thing that was different was his eyes. Uh, the, the senior investigating officer had said he's got snake eyes or dead man's eyes. And that was true. They didn't show any emotion. I asked him at one point whether he was on medication because I thought maybe he was um, yeah. uh, on a heavy anesthetic or something. <sighs> but so, yeah, it was those, those very dead, emotionless eyes were, were quite different from anyone else. That's very interesting. Uh, Dr. Hodgkiss, it has been an absolute pleasure. I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed talking to you. Reading your paper was fascinating and talking to you was equally, if not more, fascinating. I really do appreciate your time and I know that our listeners have enjoyed the content as well. I certainly hope to chat to you again in the future. I hope to speak with you soon. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. I really hope that you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Hodgkiss. The study in its entirety consists of 13 interviews with different serial murderers. I would personally love to chat to the doctor about more of his experiences. So if you enjoyed this interview and would like to hear more like it, please be sure to let me know on one of our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday. Until then... Thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.